Hey guys, Toolman Tim here. Again, if you're listening to this, that means I'm on the road, which I've been on the road for, well, will be up to four weeks this time, traveling around 40 days, sorry, long, way longer than four weeks, traveling down through the States to a bunch of different events. And I thought I would love to have a little bit of content to fill in for the times when I'm not going to be available to do a show. So you guys know I'm passionate about history and I really enjoy the history of modern preparedness. So I decided to go through some of these artifacts, I guess you could call them, time capsules that I managed to pick up over the last couple of years. This one here today is Life Magazine, and it is from, let's see if we can find the date here, January 12th, 1962, cover price of 20 cents, Whew, big time dollars. And the cover says, new facts you must know about fallout, the drive for mass shelters. So this came right there you go i'll show you this for those on the audio uh it's a picture of a, a massive underground shelter just an artist rendition and of course this was in the heyday of emergency preparedness and uh, just the need for fallout shelters so yeah let's take a look at this and on the back is a beautiful ready <laughs> beautiful advertisement for chesterfield cigarettes must be canadian not really they're british but Okay, so I'll show you the pictures as we go along a little bit. This guy here says, if I can't survive on my own, the hell with it. But I favor shelters in a way. So right there is uh, everybody's favorite New York cabbie. The other one looks like a uh, barber. And he says, shelters are just something they're pushing. Someone's going to end up with a lot of money. So it's kind of a, a man on the street type interview. I'm going to try to read this without ripping the pages to you says, a few, a few build and others brood. They interviewed a rabbi, and he says, shelters delude people into accepting the inevitability of war and the possibility of survival. Belief in safety is a hoax. Bank teller, Mrs. Dorothy Ganaway, an attack wouldn't be one bomb. It would be many. We die in those shelters. Our best chance is to work for peace. Put all our efforts toward it. This one here is a construction worker. He looks rather old and haggard says, life has to go on. For that, shelters must be big enough for hundreds. They should be built under federal or state programs. Housewife, Mrs. Florence Ergang, I am dismayed at shelter morality. It is natural to protect one's family, but my eth ethics dictate that my neighbors be protected too. And finally, butcher Tony, Tony, the country should be made so strong no one would dare attack us. And we wouldn't need shelters at all. Strength is our best chance. Now, I'm going to guess maybe they really interviewed these people. They may have. It just seems so interesting. They have very specific people taking from, from very specific walks of life. Almost like they were dressed up to appear as a certain type. So there you go. You've got, there is your rabbi. And there's the bank teller. And there on the other side is the construction worker, the housewife. And Butcher Tony, a few build, others brood, into post offices across the nation, and from there into coat pockets, in glove compartments, and living rooms, still gay with tinsel, the little yellow booklet labeled Fallout Protection slipped last week. With the subdued bang of a time bomb long awaited, the holiday season ended abruptly. The U.S. government had lifted its head up for a look around at what its citizens might do to protect themselves in the event of nuclear attack. The citizens also lifted their heads, and most of them came up with their mouths wide open, talking. 
Everyone from the bleeding hearts to the hard noses had an idea about fallout shelters and rarely did two agree. It was not surprising most people simply didn't have enough facts to come to decisions. And the Defense Department's booklet did not provide enough of them. There were great and valid schisms in response to fundamental questions. Who should provide shelters? Would they provoke or deter an attack? Were shelters in themselves a bad thing for the nation? Out of the clamor, the soul-searching and continuing emergence of unsettling new facts about protection against nuclear attack, one official decision apparently had been made. There was no denying the validity of an individually built shelter. But in the bigger national scene, group shelters, which afford quick access and a pooling of vital skills, would probably provide the best guarantee that the largest number of Americans would survive a nuclear attack. Fight back and carry on. There were many areas still to be explored, many enormously important questions still to be faced and answered, as the article in the following pages and the editorial make clear. But gone forever seemed to be foolish dreams of mass evacuation to some vague somewhere, and an even more foolish postponement of any striving toward decision at all. The key point in the long-anticipated pronouncement of U.S. policy on fallout protection is its strong and sensible advocacy of mass shelters. Both those which will be selected in existing structures and those which local communities may build, partly with government help, on the surface, the new program seems the very model of sober-minded simplicity. But the fact is that the great peril, which is designed to forfend, <laughs> is not simple at all. Life has been directing its editorial attention to various phases of the shelter situation. Life is in the magazine here, guys, and will continue to do so. Last September, for instance, life addressed itself to one phase, family shelters as protection against fallout only. But since then, as scientists and government planners analyzed the problems of civil defense, new approaches and new perspectives emerged. On this and the pages which follow are some examples of community shelters. The advantages of community shelters are clear. But the program tends to deal with fallout as if it could be isolated and dealt with apart from the other grave dangers that would accompany any large-scale attack. Assuredly, a thermal nuclear attack may never come, and if it should, it might prove less terrible than expected. If, for example, the enemy targeted a mili in on military bases alone, but the unshakable truths are the weapons already exist to make a monstrous onslaught possible at any time, and that the hazards of such an onslaught are varied and complex. The truths must be dealt with. Until they are, the great muddled debate about fallout will continue, and the crucial questions which have been troubling the public conscience for months will go unanswered. Should every householder think only of himself and his family and prepare his own fallout shield? Should he purchase weapons to repel any of the countrymen who try to intrude? Or should he simply relax and trust in luck and government to protect him, and when the scientists and experts so hotly disagree over matters of fact, which side should he believe? Combination of perils. This article will attempt to ex examine the harsh facts about the nature and variability of fallout, to place fallout in its proper context along with fire and other major hazards, to describe how these parallel dangers would combine in a nuclear attack, to illuminate the consequent need for shelters fortified against the devastating combination, it will also point out six crucial problem areas about which much more needs to be known if any shelter program is to work at all. In some cases, as is prudent, it will assume the worst conditions. 
Many of the scientific facts about fallout have not yet been determined. Existing beliefs on the subject are based on the results of test explosions on desert sand and oceanic coral. There are virtually no, there was virtually no fallout at Hiroshima and Nagasaki because both bombs were set off at altitude. There is no direct knowledge of what the fallout resulting from large scale surface bursts on a city would be like. It might turn out to have different characteristics from those studied by Dr. Joshua Holland of the Atomic Energy Commission. Our estimates may turn out to be three or four times too large or too small. The most important thing to remember about fallout is that it, its intensity depends on the nature of the attack. The civil defense primer concentrates on the effects of a single five megaton bomb burst at the surface of the ground. This neatly horrible peril, which is small enough to ride the warhead of a rocket, packs the same punch as all the dynamite that could be loaded in a freight train stretching from Newark to Chicago. In fact, pound for pound, our own planners consider this standard caliber bomb to be a more efficient weapon than much larger models. In case of its use at ground level, fallout shelters would give protection. But if the same bomb or bigger one were burst in the air at altitude, there would be almost no fallout at all, while the blast and fire effects would increase. Should the enemy attack with more than one bomb, overlapping fallout patterns would change all the bets, and there is no guarantee that the first attack would be the last. Further strikes might come in days or weeks later. What is known about fallout itself? It is formed when the mighty fireball of a bomb, which may be 1 to 10 miles in diameter, ooh, touches the surface of the earth. It, its temperature of many millions of degrees vaporizes everything it touches. Buildings, roads, people, and enough rock and earth to burn out a crater a thousand feet or more wide and hundreds of feet deep. As the fireball rises, its burden of matter, made radioactive by proximity to the explosion, rises with it and cools. Vaporized particles of matter combined with the radioactive products of the fission process now begin to re-solidify. First, the metals, later the soil particles and other substances. The congealed particles start to fall within 15 to 30 minutes and constitute the deadly rain for which the shelter program is designed. Just outside the range of blast, downwind from the explosion, the fallout would descend in large, fairly large particles, perhaps a sixteenth of an inch across conceivably as big as marbles, glassy in appearance and varying from yellow to black in color. But many miles downwind, a cloud of particles so fine they could not be seen would begin to settle after several hours. Light and weight, these would drift in almost horizontally and thus would be more likely to collect on one side of buildings than on the other. To fall near windbreaks like the driven snow and thus to form hot spots where the radiation concentration might be five or ten times higher than the average. No matter what its size, each fallout particle emits radiation like a miniature x-ray machine. These rays shoot out in straight lines in every direction from the particles unless stopped by a thick enough object. Protection against these rays is the function that shelter walls are designed to provide. Massiveness is what counts. The new federal standards for commercial shelters call for stopping all but one one-hundredth of the radiation. This much protection will be given by a two-inch thickness of lead one foot of concrete, two feet of dirt or sandbags, four feet of books, or three feet of water will all serve equally well. But in many cases, this would prove tragically inadequate. Great numbers of people would sicken and perhaps die. This might happen when, in a multi-bomb attack, more than one fallout pattern overlapped another, or when hotspots were caused by the vagaries of the wind, 
or perhaps even from the heavy fallout from enormous weapons. What is needed is at least three feet of dirt instead of two. This would cut the radiation down to one one thousandth. Four feet would reduce it to one ten thousandth, and five feet would stop radiation almost entirely. After the explosion, the intensity of radiation from fallout particles steadily diminishes. On an average, the radiation from a blanket of fallout would decrease one one hundred to one one hundredth of its original intensity in two days, and to one one thousandth after fourteen days. Whether either of these two levels would be a safe level, permitting permitting either hurried trips or safe part-time living out of the shelter, would of course depend on the original dose. In areas of the very light fallout, people might dash out briefly after the second day and move about freely above ground in the daytime after two weeks. But in areas where far heavier amounts fell, full-time shelter occupancy of anywhere from eight weeks to seven months could be necessary. We must be aware of the effect of fallout on health. The cardinal rule is that any exposure to radiation, no matter how small, must be considered harmful in some degree. Everybody in the world has already been exposed to radiation in some form or another. A little from past bomb tests, more from fluoroscopes and x-ray treatments, even a bit from sitting too close to TV tubes. Oh, that explains why mom used to say that to me, guys. In the time of nuclear war, of course, much higher radiation doses would have to be risked. The biological dangers are of two kinds, immediate and delayed. The immediate effects, depending on the dosage, vary from nausea to diarrhea, internal bleeding, and death within minutes from collapse of the nervous system. The various manifestations of radiation sickness are extremely agonizing, and while medical attention, particularly antibiotic therapy, can help a good deal if available, there is no specific antidote or therapy. In addition, radiation so drastically lowers human resistance to other illnesses that many people could die from diseases that ordinarily are not more than a minor nuisance. Hmm. The long-term dangers are a premature are, are a premature aging and shortening of life, a heightened chance of contracting leukemia and bone cancer years later, and perhaps other delayed illnesses. Scientists agree that there would be increased numbers of genetic mutations causing deformities in stillbirths in later generations, but working with scant, scanty evidence, they widely differ as to how really serious the problem would be. These later effects, both to the body and to the genes, can result from radiation striking the body directly, from eating fallout particles on food, from eating plants grown on contaminated soil, or drinking milks from cows that eat contaminated feed. The nature of fallout and the effects described above might indeed suggest that shelters with walls far thicker than the U.S. standard are perhaps a complete answer to the problem. But this applies only if fallout is discussed alone, as if the other effects of a bombing attack could be ignored. Such, of course, is not the case. A model shelter, a community shelter like this, is now being built by New York State, a series of corrugated metal arches underground connected by passageways. So it looks like very large sewer pipes for those on the video feed here, guys. Rather interesting. I like some of these art artist renditions from the 60s, eh? Or maybe, when was this? 1962, yep. Wasn't that uh, JFK time? A well-planned community shelter. And so this is the first picture. It says, neat concrete box reinforced and buried under earth or a highway would reduce fallout radiation to one thousandth that of the outside. 
and would give occupants some protection from blast. Useful as a recreation or meeting hall in normal times, it could shelter 500 persons in event of an attack. Stocked with food, water, first aid, and sanitary equipment, it also has ventilating system to draw fresh air from filtered intake. A source of oxygen not dependent on the outside air would give protection against firestorms. Space-saving tiered bunks rely on hot bunk systems with sleepers taking turns. Let me show you here, guys. That's this one right here. So those in the audio, this is about a 500-person underground concrete shelter with filtered air and, of course, the hot bunk submarine sleeping kind of conditions. And then the next one is an emergency dig. Impromptu shelter could be made in a few hours by digging deep trench and either roofing it with planks or driving a bus into it, then covering with earth. Entrance pipe must be bent to bar out radiation. So that's what they're doing here. It's an impromptu shelter. They're digging a hole, covering it with wood, and then parking a bus on top of it or parking a bus inside of it. I'm not exactly sure. For a man standing in the street at Hempstead, Long Island, the first inkling of a disaster might be an incredibly dazzling blue-white light as on the surface of Manhattan, 18 miles to the west. 20 megaton bomb went off. If he was facing toward the burst, the image of the fireball would burn holes right through the retinas of his eyes before his reflexes could act to blink his lids. But if facing the other way, he would be merely dazzled. Almost immediately, the wave of direct heat would begin to strike him. If he dived behind the nearest curbing or building and stayed until the awesome noise, the shockwave, and the rest of the heat and rush of wind passed him, he would almost sure not to become a human torch. But at the edge of Queens, 11 miles from the burst, the clothing of people exposed would be aflame. All around the Hempstead men, some buildings and trees, dry leaves might be burning. Windows would be broken. Many persons would be injured by flying glass and heat, and would few would die. In Manhattan itself, where the fireball would dig a deep crater half a mile wide and as deep as a 20-story building, Immense squeezing pressure would begin crushing buildings by the thousands. The Manhattan skyline would be completely turned into rubble for two and a half miles around the center of the crater. Lost in the thunder of the falling city would be a vast crash of splintering glass as millions of windows broke, some possibly as far away as Willington, Willington Delaware, a hundred miles to the south. A rush of winds starting out at several thousand miles per hour, wow, and a ground shock as large as a major earthquake would expand the ever-widening circle of severe destruction out to around seven and a half miles. Equally as important as construction for protection against fire is the fact that the shelter simply must have a good supply of fresh and unheated air. And the air system should preferably be self-sustaining. Experiments with mass shelters in small artificial firestorms by the Navy the Naval Radiological Defense Laboratory in San Francisco have indicated that with improved engineering, these dangers of fire and heat can be protected against. A company which builds portable air conditioning units used by the astronauts as they move from truck to missile in their spacesuits is now developing a chemical reconditioner for the air in a sealed shelter. Interesting. When to emerge. Although civil defense advises that survivors can come out after the second week, in some places it would be safe to come out sooner. In other places, emergence after two weeks would be fatally precipitous. 
Post-attack radiation levels will be different in every area all across the U.S. since the Comrade radio system, which is not protected from attack, and much of the rest of the communication systems will probably be knocked out. There is there is no hardened radiation gather data gathering network. Hmm. Post-attack cleanup. Some research has been done by this, by the Agricultural Department in the Naval Radiological Defense Lab. But whereas civil defense advises that everybody can engage in cleanup work, the experiments thus far indicate only trained experts should do so. Valuable measures might include hosing down streets, plowing under non-farm soil, possibly brushing off animals, furniture, and houses. The benefit could be a sharp reduction in the time spent in shelters. Since rodents and germs and insects will abound, and people's resistance will be at a low ebb, devastating epidemics may ensue. <laughs> As a medically modern nation, we have the advantage of being a clean population in terms of residual diseases and are educated about sanitation, but we are also thus not immune. Restoring the outside world. A most vital problem for continued survival would be the condition of the environment and the possibilities of rehabilitating it. Conditions of land, plants, and animals might be grim, most large animals seem to be scarcely more resistant to radiation than humans. Thus, shelters for farm animals deserve much more consideration than given so far. Croplands would have to be carefully monitored in all areas with too much fallout, strictly roped off and guarded against farming, since radioactive elements from the soil are taken into the plants. Scraping off two inches of the surface with bulldozers would return this land to use. The hot soil, when pushed to one side, would have to be buried or treated in some way to keep it from washing back onto the fields. Hmm. Interesting. And here, guys, is a photo of um, above ground, an above ground shelter in place. A great big, I don't know, what's that, about an eight or ten story apartment building? Some protection above ground. If they are far enough from the blast to avoid obliteration, many apartment and office buildings could provide fallout shelter. Some are of fireproof construction, though this would not help in a firestorm. As protection against radiation, people taking shelter in them should put as much space and mass between themselves and the fallout particles as possible. Like the people in this drawing, they should head for the center of a basement of the building, not the top and ground floors. They should avoid the floors with setbacks and next door roofs where particles would settle unless several walls are between them and the exterior. Safe areas vary with construction. The government is now making a survey of existing buildings to find and mark fallout shelter spaces and stock them. Also valuable would be an auxiliary power plant as shown in the basement. The end. So, you know it was an interesting time of life when Life Magazine did two cover stories in the span of less than six months about the um, ability to survive nuclear fallout. This one here is a homemade radiation suit or fallout suit made with garbage bags and duct tape. And it was rather an interesting time. I can only imagine living during the time when, I mean, we still live during it, but at, when the newness was there. And this is a lot of stuff that's forgotten, and hopefully we never, ever have to deal with it. That's what I hope. But I sure as hell want to know about it. That's why I love having guests on the show, like Dave Jones, the NBC guy, listening to what he has to say, because it seems absolutely daunting before you start researching it. Once you speak to experts on the topic, you realize, hey, as long as I'm not at ground zero, 
it doesn't take a hell of a lot of preparation or work to survive or maybe even thrive from something like this. So I hope you enjoyed this kind of look back into the uh, historical context that was Life Magazine from January 12th, 1962. And in case you're wondering, I get a kick out of these right here. But this magazine I bought from an online source. I don't know if you can read it or not. But it has a label. Remember when magazines used to come in the mail? This was a Mr. Edward L. Ryan from 13 Willow Street, Mystic, Connecticut. And it arrived, I don't know what that, uh, it says August 62. I don't know what that means. But anyway, I love those mailing labels that used to come on the old magazines. I used to, there you go, subscribe to quite a few back in the day. So anyway, guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.